Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is AJ Bruno, CEO, founder of Quotapath. He's a second-time founder. In his first incarnation, he managed to exit for $225 million. He's currently on Series B with uh, Quotapath, and today we're going to spend a fair amount of time capitalizing on the fact that we have a proper Complan geek. AJ, would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on your history, please? Marcus, thanks for having me. Incarnation, I think that's the first time that word's been used in my bio, but I like it. Probably will stick. Go right on my LinkedIn <laughs> profile right after this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Compline Geek, I, I'll take that. I've spent five years in this, uh, this compensation plan world, but uh, kind of a quick history lesson on myself. Prior to my first company, you mentioned Trendkite, I was a sales leader by trade. I worked for a thousand person company called Meltwater, 800 of which were sellers, traveled all over the world and uh, opened offices for that company in San Diego and uh, helped manage the West Coast sales teams as well. So I've been in the sales world for quite some time, I would say 13, 14 years, I'm date myself on that. and. Uh, have seen the evolution of the sales team uh, during that time as well. At Trendkite, I was founder and president, managed the growth team from zero to 30 million in ARR, about 150 folks in the SDR, new business and account management capacities. Outside of that, I have three little three little girls and I'm a commercially rated pilot. And uh, running businesses is a lot like flying airplanes, but not a lot like complaints. <laughs> They're a little different there. <laughs> Anyway, excited to, to connect and uh, chat with you about this uh, little conundrum that we have around what uh, what makes a good compensation plan. If we were to put together a list of all the things that we would really want, and we had that wish list, it was the absolutely ideal comp plan that served, first of all, the employee. So it served the seller. Let's see what it would need to contain. So to just give, it, give us a quick overview of what you think a good comp plan should look like. You should be able to visualize it really easily. I think first and foremost, I think with the, the, the CFOs like quick Excel as their, their tool of choice on everything is not how a sales, sales rep thinks. It's just not. There are self-proclaimed sales nerds out there. I am a comp plan geek, but I am not, I wouldn't consider my data literacy <laughs> always to be like a hundred percent. I can for sure analyze, of course, as a, a CEO of a company, but um, to, to go and pull all the Salesforce reports, I always had a really trusted RevOps leader. Today, that RevOps leader, former RevOps leader of Trendkite is now my co-founder of Quotapath. And so I, I, I brought, brought him along for the journey as well, which good sales leaders typically do. And I really think a really great comp plan, you just need to be able to look at it and get it within like 20 seconds, 20 seconds. I just came up with that number, but I thought about it really intensely right then. And <laughs> if you can, see, can kind of see the chart, you know, things like accelerators or decelerators or milestones or multi-year bonuses, those can all be visualized still pretty easily. And that's what a really good comp plan uh, should should it should speak to the rep in a way of like, oh, I see that I see that up into the right right at that hundred percent mark. I truly understand. And as I scroll over it, I can see it goes from okay, it was five thousand dollars a month, and then oh wow, 
if I do 150%, it goes to $10,000. I, I do one and a half X my base rate of a commission rate. Like that should inspire really good comp plans, inspire to people to do more, not to, to sandbag, not to gamify them, not to put all these hooks and these triggers in them, but they inspire. Okay. So let's look at a good comp plan from the customer's perspective. What are the behaviors that the comp plans should drive that actually are in the customer's best interests? The, and when you say customer, you talk about the company's bottom line, right? That's what you're No, saying. I'm talking about the end customer, the poor uh, buggers who have to suffer the salespeople turning up in front of them Thank and you. behaving not necessarily with honor. I, I asked that question very intentionally as well, Marcus, because I knew exactly what you meant by it. But I think that that's <laughs> the first thing that, it, well, you asked the question and I think everyone immediately goes to like, how does this serve the company this best interest, right? But the yeah. customer, the end user, the rep is exactly, exactly that. So what are the mechanics of it? First off, the compensation plan is the ending, not the, not the beginning of like the, the thing that you, you should understand the, the, the methodology, you should understand the company's financial plan or North star metric. Like what is the company doing? And, and I think for new sellers, that's a little bit of a tall order to ask. So your onboarding process of like really understanding the mission vision uh, and the values of an organization, the DNA of that company actually does, that's the beginning. And then that does actually eventually tie to a comp plan as a rep, I would want to make sure. I understood the products uh, in a way where I thought about how those products create successful outcomes for the, the people that I'm selling it to and what those use cases, of course, and those value props. Of course, there's all the sales methodology, but I'm really thinking about it from the rep point of view of what's driving my behavior, what's actually... Uh, I absolutely want that outcome. And uh, what I'm trying to understand is if we structure the uh, the comp plan in the right way so that it serves the customer, the end customer, it serves the company, and it serves the rep. Win, win, win. That's, that's what we're trying to create. Yeah. But the problem is that most comp plans, let's be honest about it, are mostly geared towards the company unless someone made a mistake in Excel, in which case they may be slightly waiting the other way. I mean, and it, because first of all, salespeople aren't very good at maths. Secondly, most salespeople, uh, let's be honest, because most of them are in February and they still haven't got their comp plan for 2023. Exactly. That's right. And and so yeah. that's with the office of the finance. And so the reason you're saying is absolutely true. The reason for it is because when finance owns comp plans, they tend to happen this way, but, but even worse, Finance can own the comp plan, but if they're not bringing in all of the other stakeholders and sales leaders, you said sales leaders, but the truth of the matter is less than 30% of comp plans are actually derived or owned by the sales leader. It's either sales ops, rev ops, or finance. And in fact, in the last 12 months, the compensation plan, just like everything else, has moved to the office of the finance. Last year, we did when we did the poll... Uh, RevOps owned 50% of the like comp plans. I think it was like 25 sales leadership, 25 on finance, and then 50% was owned by sales ops, RevOps. That has now shifted to 50% owned by finance. Why? Because it's exactly what you just said is you haven't delivered a comp plan yet. It's because 
the office of the finance is consolidating and pulling everything in. There's um, this change for sure on cost structure for companies, both tooling and headcount. 85% of SaaS businesses cost structure is in headcount. So when things get a little squirrely, what do you do? You constrict. Constraint can lead to focus, but in in the 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 idea of the comp plan, it's usually a bottom of the barrel in the finances eyes task to do, and it's tasked by a pretty junior person at bigger companies, and it's just a it's just a massive mistake. And it's an exercise in moving stuff around on a spreadsheet. It's not a tool that's used to drive performance and behavior. It's also designed with um, the wrong lens as the starting point, because if you're trying to drive performance and behavior, beating people with a carrot and making them feel like they're failing. So one of my big, big bugbears is over, uh, over assignment and quota. That to me smacks of either incapable or incompetent management and leadership or lazy buggers who just think, well, if we throw a few bodies at the problem, it doesn't really matter who suffers as long as we end up with the, the number that we promised. Everyone's a happy bunny. Yeah. Am I, I missing it, something? I, I, I feel I feel like a, a, a sort of mad uncle at a wedding quite often. Earlier, you said something like it puts a real beer in your bonnet. I think it was, was bee it a bee in my bonnet. And it was a bee in your bonnet. I, I thought you would use a funny idiom that I wasn't familiar with, but it was the bee in your bonnet. That is uh, very true. And that problem has gotten a lot, lot worse this year, Marcus, unfortunately. The overcapacity challenge as we try to fit a square peg in a round hole, so to speak, on the finance teams have all of these like levers that they're going to pull on. And what's the easy lever for them to pull on? A number of it's a spreadsheet quota. Yeah. Well, but again, this is why we as salespeople really have to buck our ideas up. Finance has got the razors out and they're cutting very close to the bone. Procurement is reviewing pretty much every contract that they've ever signed to see what they can do to squeeze uh, cost out of that. Then headcount is in grave danger. And anyone who was nervous before is more nervous than ever about putting their signature on any contract that could possibly backfire. And we as salespeople turn up and we try and force them to suffer our tediously boring, extremely mundane marketing material in order that we can try and push them onto our selling platform so we can try and demonstrate our mediocrity by giving them the most junior people in the entire organization to talk about strategically important decisions some of which they may be basing entire futures on. And then we turn these people over and we put them under enormous stress. And then we put them in charge. Uh, we have managers in charge whose entire runway was, AJ, great news. We just fired your idiot boss. You're now the idiot boss. Congrats. Off you go, son. And that's it. That's their yeah. runway. So well, I think we, we have to really rethink. You do a tremendous job of really putting everyone that's listening in the room, in that exact room, because we a lot of us have been there. I think your point of view is very valid. And I think actually even worse is what what's happening is we fired your idiot boss. 
you no longer have any bosses. <laughs> like that's yeah. actually what's going on is the right now is the <laughs> the level, like the middle management piece of it's going away. And we're a lot of times flattening an org and flattening an org could, could be a great thing. However, in a lot of cases it can go awry because you no longer have an idiot boss, but now you have someone that may or may not be an idiot boss. I don't know, but they have no idea what your world is like. They have like literally zero clue on what you do day to day. They've never carried a bag. They've never been in a sales position. They don't know the stress. They don't know the mental trash that a seller goes through quarter by quarter as they're working to get deals over the line, waiting to hear back from their contacts, trying to get right decision makers, multi-threading, finding the right value props, objection handling, having a bullshit competitor come in at the last second. Like they don't know this stuff. And so the comp plan just becomes an easy thing for them to throw over the fence. And then uh, who's there to catch it? Who's there to catch the... This is really interesting because you you touched on something I think that's really fundamental, AJ, which is that should the compensation just be about the result? Because actually what we want to do is we want to try and drive behavior. And those behaviors are, are leading indicators as to whether we're going to get the outcome that we want. But the problem is that if you're fixating on the result, it's the same thing when people go into Salesforce or whatever CRM. The first question you get asked when you put an opportunity in is what's the close date? So your attention goes from everyone beating the drum about top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel and the middle of the funnel where all the real value happens for the customer in the buying process and all the real relationship building and the trust and the intimacy and all of that stuff happens in the middle of the funnel. At the end, the decision pretty should be pretty much a dead cert if you've done your job right, or certainly a very clear yeah, head-to-head. And at the top end of the funnel, you should be doing is disqualifying um, the people or not attracting the people you shouldn't be attracting. But instead, we spend a vast amount of money on advertising to anyone, paying for MQLs, that then tie up your sales force, which is any wonder that 30 to 40% of them, sorry, 70, 60 to 70% of them are failing to hit quota consistently. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, you're hitting on a couple of different things that are fantastic. I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning of this is that complaints are the result. And so where do you focus? Where do companies focus? They focus on the result, but it, 100% true. There's there's a phenomenal um, book, one of my favorite sales books called Cracking the Sales Management Code. It's a little dated, but it's probably been updated at this point. But it, it, the one story that it tells in there just hit so it hit home. It hits home with me, and it, it like how I think about comp as well in this regard is look. If my daughter came home with an A or sorry a B on her report card in math, I can't just like snap my fingers and turn that to an A. That's the result. I'm going to focus on it. I might yell at her. But that's not that's not that's not going to help anything. So if I if I kind of unwind this and just like pull this back a little bit, maybe she has a weekly quiz. She gets an A on that weekly quiz. She's going to get an A in math. Pretty straightforward. That's the objective. But but how does she get an A on the the quiz? Well, let me think about this. What if I studied with her for thirty minutes? That's a novel idea. I study with her thirty minutes a day. That's the activity. Is the activity going to drive the objective to drive the result that I want? Yes. Where do I need to put my focus? On the activity. It's exactly what you just said. It's that top of the funnel to, to change those, make those behavior changes. Now, comp plans can, can absolutely do this. You're like, well, wait, comp plans focus on revenue. 
is that how does that make sense well in a lot of orgs you have sdrs and they they follow they they qualified opportunities sales accepted opportunities whatever mqls whatever it is you you want to call it and along that chain that value chain there's different behaviors that we can incentivize and they don't have to be gigantic like the the result can still be the the main part of the variable that the sales rep is getting but give them a little bit of a breadcrumb across the way of like of the activity it's like okay what do you want to do i want to hit 200% of quota perfect 200% of quota how are you going to do that you hit 50% of quota last quarter so like let's actually talk about that and we look at the close one ratios and we're going to diagnose and we diagnose certain problems and challenges and that's as us as sales leaders that's how we coach now that's how like true sales leaders i'm sorry say that again true sales leaders get all of their energy from coaching and coaching uh-huh. behaviors and incentivizing the right behaviors that's what makes uh, really good sales leaders uh, fantastic it's not them coming in the 11th hour and closing their team's deals it's not scalable go back and rewind that bit please and then listen again pay attention and actually implement what aj is saying the reality is that your middle management layer is probably the greatest catalyst you have for driving performance improvement and you're probably putting all the wrong people into them then you're making their lives even harder by creating compensation plans and measuring things that drive the wrong behavior and encourage salespeople to waste inordinate amounts of time interrupting people at the wrong time in their buying cycle and as a result of that they then get a bunch of knockbacks and you spend a fortune marketing to people who you then push out of your pipeline and many of them into the arms of your competitors congratulations so please come back on that because um th- there's quite a bit to unpack. well and i think the thing you also just said is really interesting because this is a this isn't just on the sales rep or even the sales manager. This is a company strategy interrupting the sales pattern and sales cycle. Like there's a lot of different business models out there. There's consumption-based platforms, there's uh direct B2B, B2C, there's product-led growth, PLG. And the thing that you're talking about there is really on the interrupting part is how you know, product-led growth companies have this kind of natural tension between product and sales and, and product-led growth companies all have sales teams. You know, Figma has a sales team. Notion has a sales team. Airtable has a sales team. Slack sales team. All of these f- things that you say like, oh, it's free to get started. Yeah, freemium is a part of it. But what you what you need to do is cr- map that user journey across the way. We're, we're do either way. I'm even talking about this right now because this is exactly what Quotapath is going through right this second. We started as this journey of uh, a sales rep, uh, a sales tool. For, for reps to be able to measure their commission. And through the process and the buyer journey and the user journey, user journey more importantly, realized that actually that was the wrong persona to focus on. Uh, revenue operations and sales operations, they're the tinkers, they're the real sales nerds, they're the real data geeks and data literacy. And it's their job to empower the rest of the organization to learn how to do the things that they're saying. And so we're like, oh, okay, that's actually, those are the people that are coming into our funnel the most. We need to change our, our journey. But while we're changing our journey in the product, you know, and we have like these kind of like tours or, or thinking things in the product that are just these activation, aha, time to value that we think about those on the product. Yeah. But at any point, there could be a, a person coming in and interrupting that beautiful experience that the company has set up. 
And so now you have a pissed off product team at the sales team and you have a pissed off sales team at the product team. And so like, that is actually something that I just wanted to focus and take some time to, because it, that's a, that's a very evolving thing. The best in class companies are doing as well. It's very, very, very challenging to do that well. Again, I'm going to push back on that because I think oh, good. The, Please. Um, the, the opportunity to get this right actually is significantly simpler than we tend to make it. And it starts with having everybody rowing in the same direction. GB rowing team and the GB cycling team had one mantra. Does it make the boat or the bike go faster? If it doesn't, we then have to question why we're even looking at it and we ditch it. Uh, if it does, what incremental improvement can we add? So can we add three thousandths of a second uh, by changing the pillows? Can we improve their um, speed over 100 meters by you know half a second by uh, improving their hydration levels? Tiny, tiny, tiny stuff. But what they did was they put real thought into it and they worked together. And what I see sadly lacking in most revenue operations is that you overemphasize one side, typically cold, direct new business. The data geeks are in charge of vast, or they have vast amounts of control and they spend money on technology and measuring stuff that's easy and simple to measure instead of the stuff that seems to really matter to customers. In 428 interviews with CFOs, 100% of them responded by saying their number one quality they were looking for was honesty. I mean, honesty. human traits. Now, again, this is stuff that we should be coaching at management levels and we should be hiring for, but none of this stuff is joined up. It's all siloed. You've got HR doing their thing, finance doing their thing, and reacting badly to the current economics. You've got the board pushing marketing for data every other day and then changing direction midweek. Mm -hmm. It's just insane. What do we have to do to try and bring some calm and bring people together around common purpose because we do remarkable things as a species when we do that i don't think you push back on anything at all i think you actually got to the heart of it which is this alignment factor and how do you exactly that how do you get everyone on the same page and that's something that we think it will tie it back to calm we think about all the time because you have so many people that are involved i mean this is why quota path even exists because me as a sales leader at Trendkite, I had reps that would come up to me and th think they're they're getting paid incorrectly. I had to go back to the CFO who said talk to sales ops, who saw the formula was wrong or split deal or whatever it was. How many days do you reckon you lost selling time because people were looking at their comp plan, they were simmering resentment, and then they were arguing the toss, then they were going back and rechecking it. And then yeah. they were arguing the toss again. And then it they were my day more. job by the end, 150 reps. You can imagine there's some challenges on a monthly quota, by the way, with sales cycles, less than 30 days. So this was a, this was like a never ending story so, for so, quota path is effectively a survival mechanism. <laughs> it's a, yeah. It's my, it's my therapy. I guess I don't know. <laughs> it's probably not the right way to, 
to think about that if I'm talking to uh, to all these companies that have just like these snowflake of plans. The answer is it's actually really easy. You simplify, just simplify. Get to the heart of it. Exactly. Get to the heart of it. Find out what are those human behaviors that you're looking for that you want to incentivize. I know we're like being super redundant as we storytell, but like all of our markets, all of our these all come back to these this truth, right? It's like this. Just don't overcomplicate your world. It's not. It's not worth it. There is a, a really simple truth about the way the human brain works. Whenever it finds uncertainty or ambiguity, the default setting is the worst case scenario. How can it possibly serve shareholder value to have your people in a heightened state of continuous stress where 60% of managers today in sales are suffering from a health-threatening condition that is related to stress. Now, that these people typically have seven to eight people reporting to them. So you do the maths in your own organization. If you have 10 managers, that means 70 of your employees are currently in the thrall of somebody who may not be at peak performance. Yeah. And if you drive them to high levels of stress, they tend to make bad decisions. And when I've spoken to CFOs, they're telling me at the moment, number one pressure is protect against external threats from compliance and regulation. Number two, capital protection. Got to make sure that we don't end up the end of the year worse off than we started because that's embarrassing. Third one is growth, but it comes third. Okay. Inflation, tackling the challenges of um, human beings not being reliable and trying to automate as much as possible so that the people you do have are working on higher value stuff and feel more engaged. Now, these are the top five priorities, but how do the comp plans work against those five things? How often do they encourage people to cut corners? maybe not tell the whole truth or withhold something that might be pertinent. The challenge there is that they try to solve for all five things, I think, in a lot of ways. You just mentioned that what's at the top of the mind of the, the highest offices in companies. And if that's on the top of their minds, compliance, of course, that's a security threats. They're going to try to protect against these things in every way they possibly can. So by doing so, they're adding a lot of terminology to their comp plans that a sales rep is not going to understand. That that like that organizational DNA and baggage, day one is a rep. You show up and you're like, wait, I have a term in here on GDPR. I don't even like what is how do I even how do I even <laughs> think about that? That's the challenge there. Um and if you have all of the, the health piece of it hits home, by the way, Marcus, I, I myself went through a, a situation stress related that ended up, I ended up in the hospital for six weeks. And it's and so was, common. It's, it's it, common. it happens all the time. And yeah. the, the number of uh, senior salespeople who've been promoted into management now looking to go back to individual contributor roles, just because it's not worth the hassle. You take a pay cut, and you get stress every single day and you dread going to work. It's insane. 
it is a challenge and it's not getting any better this year. It's getting, getting worse. Their quotas have gone up. They have this lagging challenge of hiring if they needed to hire because OTEs went way up. And so the lagging wage inflation is a part of this and they're being asked to do more with less. And uh, for a lot of companies, there's probably a, a breaking point. You just have to be able to manage. So first off, let me just say this, all companies are going through this. Like I'm not sitting here to say that I'm on my high horse either. Like I, I have a board. I just went through two and a half months of financial planning. The things, this is a therapy session for you to me. You lost your hair though. I lost my kids. Were, <laughs> my kids are the reason. I have three daughters, Marcus. They're the reason. I, I have three kids. daughters too. Uh, yeah. But... <laughs> like, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> my grandmother always used to say, grass doesn't grow on a busy highway. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm taking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't have much grass. I know the stresses and that like those challenges, I know them intimately. I know them as a CEO. I know them as a sales leader. I know them as a sales rep. I know them. And for, uh, for me, I, I feel on an EQ EI level, that's one of my superpowers and it hurts. So like I <laughs> hurt so much that one time I ended up at the hospital because of a, an ulcer um, that uh, I took an antibiotic and the blood transfused, uh, it got caught in my ulcer and uh, my body tried to kill it and it transfused right into my bloodstream and caused uh, arthritis for six weeks, caused hives, caused chronic fatigue. And this, these are the real, real things that a lot of sellers out there are going through a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of doubts. But I'm here to tell you, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It is. This is my fifth recession, and you do make it through. I mean, just keep calm. That's the trick. Whilst everyone else is panicking, stay calm and pick your fights. Narrow your focus. Become more embedded within uh, fewer accounts, but deeper. And then work out from there within their own ecosystem. You can do organic sales. You can sell to alumni. You can sell to their suppliers. You can sell to their JVs and alliances and channels. You can sell to uh, their family tree, overseas subsidiaries, sister companies, parent companies, and then customer's customer. Yeah. So get deep on the relationship. And that's what the comp plans, in my opinion, should really be focusing on. How do we keep customers? How do we make sure customers get the outcomes that they paid for and they intended? If we do that, then we end up having much lower costs of sale, customers repeat order, and the difference in profitability, according to the BankSAS survey of 2019, is new business in SaaS is 18% profit on average, 170% for upsells, but for expansion sales, 1150%. In this time, you need to keep the money that you make. It doesn't matter how much you make. Uh, what matters is how much you get to keep because you can spend that. And we've got to focus on this other major issue, which is that in 14 years, most of the managers and most of the sellers have never had to make a profit. So tell me this, from a quota standpoint, what yeah. do we need to do to shift behavior away from revenue at any cost to profitability and sustainability. I think you've you've said this in a different bunch of different ways, but if you focus on that end user and the outcome that you want for the customer, 
for the customer, then you're going to start incentivizing the right behaviors and start to, to make those shifts. One thing that I, I think about for, for Quotapath, because we're going through this in some way as well, is just, is the person renewing and setting up the relationship, the person that, that sold them the contract? Does the sales rep have an incentive for uh, selling the right type of contracts on and, and having some level of renewal? In Sales Acceleration Formula by Mark Roberge, Mark talks, uh, talks a lot about this and, and what he saw at HubSpot, then he started to incentivize in that way or incentivizing real customers because that's what the company wants. That's what you just said, long lasting value. And I think that there's just some simple things that you can do to make sure that the sales reps understand that, that they focus on quality over quantity. The other challenge we've had is the last two years of everything's been funded and nothing's died. I mean, 90%. Marcus, what do you think the success rate of historically of Series A companies is? Less than 20%. Yeah, it's 10%. Yeah, 10%. So 90% of Series A companies fail. How about Series B companies? So like growth round, like the big, like they're now in another stage. 10%. Yeah, about 10%. Yeah, it's it's thirteen yeah. percent. It's eighty-seven percent failure rate. It's it's not much better, is the answer. And yeah. you're right. And that's what we've seen the last two years is that no one's failed right now, but that will revert to the mean this year. It will. And the companies that have gotten bridges and, and bridge rounds, they've created a lot of noise in the space. So everyone's building these platforms that are like verticalized or niche or like the AI for whatever. I mean, everything's AI now. And that uh, good companies will buckle down, solve their go-to-market challenges by really figuring out who their customers are, their great customers are, and and doing everything they can to incentivize comp plans around that. We're doing that at Quotapath. It's not the main driver of a comp plan, but it is a, a part of it. So what do we have to do to make sure that the manager's compensation, middle management compensation, also drives the right kind of management behavior. So for example, building the bench. Yeah, recruitment is the number one job of any manager. Hire the best people you possibly can. Because if you do, then most of your management problems will disappear. They don't start in, in the first place. Secondly, they have to create the conditions so those excellent people can do their best work and grow and thrive and meet their full potential. Those two functions of management are functions of coaching. Now, I don't see, I I don't recall ever having seen a comp plan that encourages or drives coaching behavior for managers, which to my mind is the most obvious thing to do. It is the challenge with it, Marcus, is that it kind of goes back to this MBO challenge that you see is that you you want to have a lot, and it goes back to alignment and goes around company alignment. You, I, I am very much a bigger believer in like the, you know, your North star metric. Um, and then everything else flows down that from there. But the challenge with it is that you can always just, you can just like, this feels, it might feel like a check in the box. That's the problem with it. I think, uh, uh Frank Slootman and, and, uh, amp it up talked about this with the, he talked about comp plans within the first 10 pages of that book, by the way, which is kind of funny. It's a great, it's a great book. He talks about Snowflake's comp plans being tied to MBOs and how trash that was and just threw it out uh, immediately. 
while I do agree with you on the coaching part of it, I think it's really, really challenging to get that right because you have to tie those behaviors to the alignment of what is the company going out and doing and making sure that you know you're 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 not creating this like A to Z sales methodology that this team has this path and this team has this path. And you want right. to make it very straight, straight, straight line uh down. So yes, but be careful. Proceed with caution. I, I agree. The challenge that we see is that managers seem to spend so much of their time in low value behaviors, supervisory, command and control, micromanagement, redoing work and disempowering and all that kind of stuff. And they don't do it intentionally, mostly. They do it out of fear and they're and more often than not the least invested in and the mo in the most precarious positions. So they're naturally pretty uh, brittle. So what can we do in order to create greater alignment across different departments. So managers also recognize that the problems that they are facing are shared in other departments and have them work collectively towards the same goal instead of at odds with one another and uh, blaming one another. I have a radical idea around this that we're going to out on. and have tested out. Have variable comp for your entire team, for the entire company. We don't do it as like a OTE like you would in sales, but have a North Star metric that we all align to. You know, last year was a financial plan. In Q1, when we hit our plan, everyone got paid out a bonus for that. Now it's challenging for sure, because like how does an engineer really like tie into that uh that number last year? And I think we didn't we have a different number this year, but I think that that was one of the things that we figured out pretty quickly is that it's really, really challenging for financial plan to be that North star metric because it's a lagging indicator for the team. And it goes back to revenue as the result, not what you're, you're going to tell me right now. <laughs> no, well, to build on something that you said, what are you doing in order to ensure that every job description has a window to the customer so that they see how they are affecting the customer either directly or indirectly. Because to my mind, there's a really cracking opportunity here. If we start creating outcome-based compensation, where when the customer reports back that they've accomplished the outcome that they intended, there is a big bonus. In between, there are small interim bonuses where people who are contributing to the customer's advancement and progression get bonused and comped along the way. Now this takes a bit of thought, but think about the power of something like that. So it's so funny you say this. So my co-founder at Quotapath uh, was my director of revenue ops, but my co-founder at Trendkites, my previous company, is building a company called Handraise that's product OKRs. And the whole goal of it is to show that your customers are successful. Meaning if your customers, and for Quotapath's world, if my customers, the increased attainment, like increased attainment, that if I could show that my customers do that, they're going they're going to love Quota Path. Of course, they're going to love Quota Path, right? Why wouldn't we be able to show that to them in the in the product itself? And that's actually what um, Matt Allison, my uh, trend uh, co-founder's company, he's working on doing. And that is like kind of the next level because if you can do that, then you could incentivize the comp plans on that. If you know that data and you know you can actually 
create variable comp across the org in the right way for the right for the right exact behavior. Right. We need to put Matt and Tim Gosnell together. Tim is the CEO of a company called Common Thread. And yeah. he's managed to architect do you know them? Yeah, I know a common thread, yep. Right, okay. So now they could they've architected the AI uh, in such a way so that they can track every cent of revenue back through data sources, lead funnels, the tech stack, the combination of technology and functionality it used, and the sales rep who was responsible or any of the sales pe people who were attached uh, to the deal. So you can identify where there's fat and where you're cutting on the, uh, the bone and uh, muscle. Now, this is a really interesting proposition because from a buyer's perspective, I'd be really curious to be able to understand just how much I'm paying for that I just don't use. And yeah. I suspect that's going to be really interesting because CFOs at the moment are desperately looking around for where they can find cash. Now, if you can cut the fat out and the tech is able to support it, if I give you a check for 60% and you turn off the functionality I don't need, that's true SaaS. And it also means that um, I now have the capability of reinvesting that money in those important but not urgent projects that I've had to mothball. That you makes me pay a fan. Do you know any company that monetizes a business model like that? That's a, that's a fascinating concept. I've never heard of that. I, well, I'm, I'm doing, I'm, that's what I'm trying to accomplish now. And I'm pulling together an ecosystem of top providers across the RevOps function as well. We look at the wicked problem that the, the organization is facing, all those different moving parts and trying to piece them. It's kind of like David, What's it, Michelangelo and uh, Dave, uh, the David statue? Mm -hmm. uh, he was asked how he could uh, recognize it. And he said, I just took the bits away that weren't David. Well, most of what we do actually is looking upstream at the prevention. And what can we stop doing? So if we stop them doing, doing it upstream, then the downstream symptom disappears. Then you've got the problem. It's a bit like switching the electricity off on, on a treadmill when someone's sprinting. And you've got to make sure that you've catered for that. But it's just about taking more time to plan ahead and think about those bigger problems and look for the technology that in combination can provide you with these things. And that stuff is out there now. Oh, yeah. That's actually been probably the biggest shift in SaaS businesses in the last decade is the operations and the like fabric of a company and just the amount of information and events you can get so that you... You can do that. I, I would say that the, the challenge with that is it goes back to our original part of it. You have all of these pieces. Are you overcomplicating the end results by trying to incorporate all of these pieces into it? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. The key is to, first of all, start with start. the big picture, working out what you're trying to accomplish and work backwards from there. Yeah. Because you can't do everything. Uh, Ultimately, right. the concept is we contact the uh, CEO after all 100 of us have spent four hours speaking to people within the organization. Then we can say, AJ, we've recently conducted 400 hours of research in your business. Your data and your people inform us that you may well be leaving $170 million per month behind. We've identified them in Appendix A in 72 areas. Aha. Uh -huh. Invite us in and my team and I will map out a pathway to eliminate them all and which six you can begin to self-funding the rest. 
So that's yeah, the model. I love it. It's a co-op. I mean, it goes to the David Michelangelo scenario. We we ourselves. I I, I had I had this thought. I, I don't know where what it's from, but it's a quote somewhere that was CEO was radical about the priorities they're working on and had everyone write every single person write down their top fifteen priorities. The top fifteen, I think it was. And he said, "Okay, now cross off eleven of those." Cross off 11. I don't want to hear anything about any of those 11. You're not to talk like bottom 11 out. Top four, that's all you're doing. It's the only thing you're working on. And also your four better match this four, better match this four as well to create radical alignment around it. And it's that it's exactly what you're saying is you just kind of pull it all out. Um, the key with that though is to make sure the most competent people run the project, not the people with tenure and not the people with title. Yeah, you need disruption in there for sure. And you need some change management and behavior changes if potentially if you're getting hired to come in, there's a reason why, right? There's a there's a uh maybe a new CEO shift, whatever the case may be, but understanding that fabric of the organization, especially for older companies, 25, 30 years old, and then like where what can you uh, strip out and focus in on? Really important. This has been a really fascinating conversation. First of all, I'd love to have you back because uh, I think this com this topic deserves much deeper and ongoing conversation. Secondly, I'm really curious about this. What was the best mistake you've made as a founder, as a leader? And what did you learn from it? The best mistake I'm going, I actually do know this answer. And it's going to sound dramatic. I wouldn't have called it the best mistake before you asked the question. In 2013, we were a Series A funded company and probably about 20 headcounts. And we were two weeks away from running out of capital. Uh, that's a common story. <laughs> but how many of those turn around in, uh, in ways? Maybe a lot of them. And we made that mistake to get us there. And we ended up finding a, a CEO. I wasn't the CEO. My co-founder, Matt, was a CEO that came on and, and with him came funding. It brought radical focus for me to go run the sales team in that moment in time. And I became a much better leader, board member, founder over the next four years because I had just radical focus because of that mistake. Interesting. Are you somebody who responds well under pressure? That's a great question. It's a phenomenal question. I I'll tell you all how I respond. I respond competitively, urgently, and with everything I have. That depends on what well means, because if you're in my <laughs> orbit, you're going to get a lot of FaceTime with me. And I push the boundaries on things and that sometimes has led to challenges and opportunities really for growth for me. But I respond immediately to pressure really well. Okay, let me ask a, a challenging follow-on question then. People who are good in crises tend to be uh, create crises so they can be good in them. Guilty or not? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> How about a non-answer on that one? <laughs> yeah, that's all. I, I sense you're pleading the fifth on this I one. The fifth. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great, great question there, Marcus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's wrap up then. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot AJH23. You know he's not going to pay any attention, but it's really damn good advice. What is it? Get a coach that is outside of the organization. Get an advisor. One, find a really, really, really good person to not just be a sounding board, but to be your calming mechanism. And you talked about mental health. You talked about challenges. You talked about all of these things. I've gone through a lot of these and... I currently have a CEO coach that is like, there's one person uh, that I can definitely make sure that I'm like focused on. It's allowed me to take pauses, to take breaks, to give a little bit deeper thought to my team, be more available, transparent in the right ways. I'm a transparent person, but not always in the right ways. And that took me years. It's taken me 13 years to really get to this point. Because I wouldn't listen to any advice. You're right. I wouldn't listen to any advice. But I probably at 23 would probably like, okay, I'll do this thing because older AJ said it. It's pretty easy, easy to do. I'll do it. But I think that could have made a radical difference earlier in my career versus later in my career. Fantastic. So what would you recommend people watch, read, listen to in terms of great stuff to fill your mind as a leader, a founder, or a seller? I give. I gave a lot of good uh, recommendations. I know, but I'm going to milk you for some more. The one that's that I read that was pretty uh, impactful for me that I've reread a couple times is Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Patrick Lencioni. It's good for all. If you want to be a leader, it's a it's a good book to to read. Um, it's, it's story driven. It's short. It will take you two hours potentially if you're a fast reader, but maybe five hours if you're me. It's a really really thought-provoking book. It's one of those books that as a leader, you're always going to have a different makeup of your team, of your sales team, of your uh, management team, of whomever. And you can reread the book and there's a different archetype for different people. And that archetype will hit you right there and make you think about your own team. I love books like that, that don't have to tell you the answer. They storytell to get you there. Great sellers. What are they? They're great storytellers. Absolutely. My book of the week is, uh, again, Trust-Based Selling by Charles H. Green. A wonderful book. Definitely worth a, a read. And also fantastic as a leadership tone. Trust is something that is very, very easy to lose. And leaders need to have uh, trust because without it, you don't get discretionary effort. And in this market, you really need a lot of discretionary effort. AJ, how can people get a hold of you? They can... AJQuarterpath.com is a pretty easy, I'm not as active on LinkedIn as I probably should be. I've been internally focused on my company lately. If you write a personal note and reference this conversation, I will definitely 100% respond for sure. So those are the best ways to get in touch with me. Excellent. AJ Bruno, thank you. Marcus, thank you. So this is Marcus Campy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Get in touch with AJ, get in touch with me. There's links at the bottom of the blurb uh, if you want to talk to me about training or coaching. And if you're a principled seller who's frustrated that you're having to walk a tightrope between what's good for the customer 
and what you're being told to do by senior leadership, then give me a call and let's have a chat about what you can do to ensure that you're taking your career where you want it, as well as getting what you want in life without compromising your value. So in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.